Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 77 for Friday 11th of January 2019. I'm Jeremy Sear and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening to our country, what's likely to happen and hopefully what we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is actually returning guest host, Denise Buco. Hello there. Welcome back. We also have our second guest host, Monty the Cat. Yeah, but nobody invited Monty the Cat to the podcast, and frankly, it, I, it just, it's harming the professionalism of the podcast that we start with a cat mewing seconds into it. And this is supposed to be a relaxing episode. This is supposed to be a not stressful episode with a cat, but it's supposed to be all the horrible things that have been happening at the end of the last year. The, 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 the Parliament's supposed to be away. Um, you know, we can laugh at Scott Morrison and his stupid shoes uh, being photoshopped, but apart from that, like, we should be able to... We were having a nice relaxing holiday. It's still school holidays. Lots of people are still on leave. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to do. There's no people's visas being like overturned or or their Wait. citizenship like rejected. Um, and there, well, that still happens. There's no Nazi rallies. There's less parliament. The point is, there's no parliament. Uh-huh. Um, actually, the one thing that became apparent this year that, that does happen over January is when the old cabinet papers get released twenty years later. So we got a drop of all these old documents from the Howard era, from 1997. 1997 news now. It takes 20 years to come to us, but we're there. In which we discover that the Howard government was a kinder, kinder gentler government. No, Wait. we don't. No, 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 we don't. Well, sorry. Um, I'm, not, I'm not going against that in the sense that I think the Morrison and Abbott eras are even worse. But the, you know, the Howard government did you know, destroy housing. And what it turns out to have been doing is it's not just now that we're doing this global climate action sabotaging action. So we're, we're Australia punches above our weight because we work really hard to sabotage any progress. And in fact, um, just before Christmas, uh, we were the only country that joined the United States by appearing at a US government-run event promoting the use of fossil fuels at the UN climate talks in Poland. I still think that there's something strange in the Liberal Party. There's some sort of hazing ritual when you get into the Federal Party where they do weird things with coal and it just gives them like an oh. involuntary hard-on for it whenever it gets brought up. Well, that's disturbing. Um, but where, where I was going with this is not there. Uh, it was more to do with what? what we discovered that this this thing of Australia sabotaging climate agreements, of course, isn't new. Uh, and it turns out that Australia worked very hard back in 1996, 1997 to water down the Kyoto climate targets. So back to 1996, Howard was facing intense international pressure to step up our commitments to reducing climate emissions. Under Keating, we had already adapted what they called a no regrets policy, which basically is a piss weak policy. Well, we won't. We'll only consider measures that involve cutting emissions if there's definitely not going to be any adverse impact on the economy or trade competitiveness. Like, and that's basically like in planting. the short term, like not even looking at the long term impacts. Yeah. In which you know doing something is definitely better than doing nothing, but just in the short term, if it you know if it involves a minor amount of inconvenience, not not no, worth can't it. Do it. But yeah, so the cabinet papers of 1996-1997, which were released uh, at the start of the year. They revealed that in June 1996, the cabinet agreed that, quote, Australia's overall objective in climate change negotiations should be to safeguard our national trade and economic interests while advancing compatible outcomes that are environmentally and economically effective. But it says, where, where we have we recognise the need for effective global action on climate change, we're going to vow to pursue an international agreement that, quote, does not contain targets which are legally binding. And also that they wanted to argue for differentiated rather than uniform reduction targets. Basically, we wanted to be a shitty party nationally and we were more interested in alcohol industry than doing anything about it. Yeah, that seems like a very good summary. So under um, then Environment Minister Robert Hill, Australia's position was that we should do what we can to sabotage it and but we, we shouldn't have to walk away. We should be, we, we need to try to... Um, move things around so that the international community reaches their agreement and 
they sort of exclude us rather than us walking away. Like they, they're, try, they're trying to do the shitty thing but not look like it. Mm. And they also said that they needed to have a bit more work on their uh, greenhouse gas emissions because they needed to be taken seriously when they went back to negotiate. So maybe we should make it look like we're making an effort. So um, there's a whole lot of stuff there. It's worth having a look at. There, there's also some stuff there about how the how government set up for the... So, you know, you, I don't know. Presumably um, people listening to this have, uh, remember the waterfront dispute um, back in the old Peter Reith era. Um but that wasn't the thing that suddenly happened and the Howard government had to respond to it. It was a thing that they specifically set up so that they could use it to take away workers' rights. Like, that was a, a deliberate scheme. I was living in England at the time, so not so much with it, but, you know. All right. So something to look forward to in January in the quiet time is finding out the horrors of what happened 20 years ago. So there's next year, I imagine, we'll be finding out the next lot of awful things. In fact, Howard was in government until 2007. So there's another, what, decade of uh, horror to discover in hindsight which serves to remind us who Howard was and what he did at a time that the Liberal Party does wheel out Howard because yeah. they think of him as some kind of um, unifying figure that people like. But nobody outside the LNP, nobody who gives a shit about Australians generally should think that Howard should have any fondness for Howard. And they didn't at the time. This is all like hagiography after he won, after he lost um, government. Like he was kicked out in his own seat. Yeah. He would have lost in 2001 if it wasn't for September 11 and him manufacturing the Tampo um, crisis. Like that that thing where they, you know, he lied, the children overboard thing where they claimed that refugees were throwing their children in the water to bully the Australian government, which was untrue. And I remember the 2004 election because I moved here in 2004 and I remember the children overboard thing coming up. There was a a big report had come out that year, I think, but also that um, when he was uh, campaigning against Labour's uh, all-time star Mark Latham, uh, mm. <laughs> how children overboard and keeping the border secure. Now, now he's One Nations. No, wait, Lib, Lib Dems. No, no, he's now the one. He went Lib Dem to the One Nation. So uh, now he's One Nation. He used Mark to Latham. be Labour's pride and pride and joy. At the <clears> time, he was Labour's pride and joy. Um, this, by the way, linking in too with the you know the, the American system where the president can apparently hold the entire country hostage unless look. I want this thing, and if I don't get it. I will destroy the country. I will shut... Yeah, that thing that the American president can do... Um, is it's the reason terrible. why we should not have it well, when we're in Australia when we have we talk about a republic we should not have a direct election pre, directly elected president and the Mark Latham thing is a reminder of why it's a good thing that yes. prime ministers can be rolled if Mark Latham had won in 2004 which would definitely have been better for the country than John Howard winning because John Howard in that period between 2004 and 2007 John Howard set up the structural deficit that's destroyed the budget and given us the huge national debt he, with those giant um, income tax cuts, which have stopped us being able to fund public services properly, uh-huh. he destroyed housing with the capital gains tax cut uh-huh. um, and, and his first time grant that sort of set that vicious little spiral up. Like, those three years, how did a huge amount of damage. But people are like, well, Mark Latham is insane. Like, isn't it a good thing that he lost in 2004? No, because if he'd won, it would have been the Labor Party that would have won. They would have been in government. And if Mark Latham had gone bonkers, they would have rolled him. When? When Mark Latham went bonkers? Well... That's an interesting question and beyond the scope of this podcast, but would Mark Latham have gone bonkers if he hadn't lost an election? Maybe the whole act of, you know, some cartoonists go mad and become right-wing lunatics by falling on their head. Maybe in Mark Latham's case, he became a deranged lunatic far right-winger because of the the fact that the Australian electorate rejected him. Like, that must feel pretty shit. If you stand up for an election, please vote for me as your prime minister, and the electorate goes, nah. Like, that, maybe that's what broke him. Who knows? But if he if he would have broken anyway, all I'm saying is, let's not have a direct elected president. Okay. I think the point I was making is that... Ah, the point, yes. Let's yes, get back to that. the point that I was making was that you mentioned things like, to, like um, 9-11 happening, and then I just were talking about the election three or four years later, how these issues were still coming up. And to me, um, coming from Canada, it was a very US... It felt like a very US-style campaign that he was running. There was a lot of fear in it. There was a lot of attack in it. And the people I... Um, I was rooming with. So that Howard was running. Yes. Yeah. Um, the people I was, because they kept showing this boat and kids being thrown over and it was like this very, very dramatic. And I, I remember looking into it and, and, and reading about it, but the uh, they said that that really changed sort of politics here as well. Yeah, well, it set us up for the glorious xenophobic bullshit thing. But, I mean, sorry, let's, let's be clear. Australia's been xenophobic and paranoid of foreigners for a very long time. This is, It <laughs> wasn't invented new. by Howard. But... Um, the 
idea that we have to be how what Howard locked in he locked in a couple of things he locked in the idea of um, the queue and the idea that if we're kind to this refugee we're being very unkind to another refugee because we mm. won't be able to take them now those are not those don't have to be linked there is no reason why if somebody arri- arrives here on a boat we have to take a place away from someone who was in the very small program that Australia is part of like Howard linked those two deliberately so that he could yeah. play refugees off against each other the solution to that is simply to stop doing that yeah. And, and people are like, oh, well, then Australia will have too many people. No, there's not that many refugees who, who come across the world to come here. But yeah, Howard said in a bunch of nasty things. that, and, and the idea that we have to process them offshore because otherwise they'll have some rights to Australia. And, you know, excluding large parts of Australia from our own, like this whole weird thing where we set up this parallel universe in which Australia has power over areas but no responsibility. Well, no, that's with, with great power comes no responsibility. That's the famous line from Spider-Man, <laughs> it is. isn't it? That, the other thing that Howard, of course, did, being, which I referred to before, was breaking housing and the, setting up the massive uh, skyrocketing in house prices, which has driven up, well, driven ordinary people out of the housing market as owners and driven prof- you know, higher-earning professionals into the rental market, pushing rents up uh, exorbitantly as well. All of this has happened as a result of what Howard did back then. But there are a couple of stories that came out uh, this week, and, and I think we and we wanted to have a little bit of a, a chat about the issue of uh, the fight back against Labor doing anything about negative gearing, even the minor thing they're doing. Like, it's still... What Labor is proposing to do, uh, just as a quick summary, being to wind back negative gearing on investment properties for purchases of existing properties... It doesn't affect people who already are negative, who already own those properties yep. and negative, negative gearing. It's grandfathered, which is pretty inequitable. It means basically another way in which the boomers are being subsidised by the rest of us. But anyway, um, and it uh, you can still negatively gear new properties. So it's about there's a bit of incentive to build new ones. Yes, but obviously part of the point of winding it back, even the little bit that Labor is doing, is to put downward pressure on prices, and the real estate industry and lobbyists and uh, all the politicians who own investment properties, which is most of them, and basically all the people who own stuff, the wealthy people, the people who who own the media and people who from whom we hear are trying to work very hard at the moment to do a bunch of pushback on that. Um, and we're not being served very well by the way the media are covering it, including the ABC, who have apparently fallen for one of the LNP's bullshit lines that insinuate something and hopes that you don't think too hard about it. And that line is the one that says that uh, half the people who negatively gear are on uh, 80,000 or less. Now, when the coalition says that, they are careful, usually, to say on taxable incomes of 80,000 or less. They are very careful about it. Because obviously, the whole point of negative gearing is to reduce your taxable income. So... The idea is you negatively gear the properties and you then write the losses off against... Um, so your capital gains can keep increasing, but you can lose money on, on the rent and the, compared with the repayments or whatever. And all of that comes off your tax. Now, that's, of course, much more beneficial to you if you have a high income that's taxed at a higher marginal rate than if you're on a low income. But the point is that it reduces the amount you might be on, 200 or 300,000, and then be able to use negative, get negative gearing to reduce your income to below 80,000. Absolutely. Now, that's how tax deductions work. Tax deductions don't just give you money back. They reduce your taxable income. So therefore, the tax you paid becomes an overage. So what it means, what it means is that somebody who is earning 300,000 is taxed as if they only earned 80,000, which is one of the reasons why negative gearing is so inequitable and wrong, because somebody who's actually earning 300,000 should be taxed on that basis and not be able to use being a landlord and, and driving um, ordinary people into um, homelessness and so forth with, with the, the, the shitty rights they have. Well, because to, they to... don't actually want to be landlords. They just want to uh, invest. And these are investments to them. They are not properties. They would rather lose money than pay it to general revenue, to pay it into yeah. tax. Um, now, that whole line, the taxable income line, is really misleading because people don't under, people think, therefore, taxable income of 80000 well, that's not a bit that big. And they forget that that means their real income was much bigger than that or they mm. wouldn't be negative gearing. Like, 
If you've yes. negatively geared down to 80,000, your income must be more than that. And if you're going to bother to go through the negative gearing, it was presumably much higher than that. The ABC, in the story published on the 12th of December, forgets that. They actually just reported it as almost 1.3 million Australians own a negatively geared investment property, and more than half of negative gearers earn less than 80,000. Oh, it's just, it's one no. word. And it's one, it's... They earn much more than eighty. Yeah. If if you look at those numbers, um, a, a lot of the people negative gearing having don't have any income at all. They've got zero income. Yeah. It's weird that how are they how are they pay? Oh, because their real income is vastly bigger than that. Just they pay no tax. Yes. <laughs> anyway, that's the ABC. Um, but that was in a story that they published uh, where you've got uh, John Simon from one of the mortgage lenders trying to scare people into thinking that. Uh, the negative gearing changes will tip Australia into a recession. They've got oh my goodness, and uh, never, never mind the drops. That the past two years, there's been a slight drop in housing prices in Sydney and so Melbourne. Like, we don't need to do anything about it. Even if those slight drops in housing prices don't actually equal the jump in 2017 like in 2017 housing prices in sydney went up almost 13 percent and over the past two years they've in what they've come down nine percent total over two years so they haven't even equaled what they hit their highest point at in one year it's like it's like climbing to the top of mount everest and then climbing back down a meter and being like i'm not high anymore yeah. Uh, yeah. Wait, you're still at the top of Everest. Yeah. You're still summoned at Everest. Yeah. You still can't reach you up there. And Frydenberg tell, was we had the quote when he was doing this back in November, like he had this on. But this is their line that they're still running. Um, if you own your own property under Labor's plan, it will be worth less. Uh, probably won't be worth less, but hopefully the rate of increasing will slow. If you rent your own home under Labor's policy, you will pay more. That's just a shameless lie. Um, and and you would hope that most renters who've experienced massive rent increases recently oh. would notice, hang on, under your policy, we're paying more and more rents. Absolutely. Anyway, as the new year came around and the uh, results for Sydney and Melbourne came out from the previous quarter and you know, there was some, some minor downturn, the industry that is very keen to make sure that nothing stops them continuing with their uh, skyrocketing house prices and the money that they're making off their investment properties from that... Um, Hell, Beats working, just owning shit and getting richer. Yeah, they're working overtime to try and... If they can't stop... Well, I think they've, they've, they realise they, they're not... It's very unlikely that Labor will lose at this point, he says, completely damning the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> do I, but, why, but why, why do you talk Maybe Jeremy? they're hoping that... Well, I suppose but Labor also is so tied onto this, I don't think that they can back down from it anyway. So... Maybe they they're maybe they're trying to scare Labor into offering them some kind of a a sweetener, but I mean the whole point of it is to drive investors out of the market, like to reduce the amount of, of it. the more investors in the market, the worse housing affordability is. Like the la- Labor, like it is not a bug if house prices um, have less pressure on them. Yeah. Um, no, and there's there'd be more people who would be able to purchase, and then that would mean there'd be fewer people renting. Well, not necessarily if you're people renting, but the people at the bottom end of the market wouldn't be pushed out. It's really interesting that in Victoria, the rental prices, that while um, house prices are going down, rental prices continue to go up. Yeah, well, and they'll, and they'll keep doing that because people are stuck. The people who would have been able to have a mortgage in you know 20 years ago or 10 years ago mm. now can't. And the landlords, do, I, I love the fact that whilst they're complaining, oh, look, there's a downturn. You don't need to do anything about house prices. Um, they're still sending out the letters saying, oh, sorry, due to the uh, rents in your area, they're uh, going to increase by $10 a week from uh, this year. Like, ah. they're go- like we've just had a, a, a rent increase. Um, yep. Weirdly, I, I thought you guys were saying that, that uh, there was some downward pressure on house prices or housing affordability. Weirdly, our rents keep going up. It's, it's odd that. Well, and it's interesting because we uh, talked a lot last year about how Victoria passed some rental reforms, which are going to be implemented over the next year and a half. Um, but... New South Wales also passed a series of amendments to their Residential Tenancies Act at late well, in the year in October. That aren't, aren't in effect yet and that the landlords are complaining about. Yeah, and they're all very, very vague and they don't even have a timeline. They're, they just move on to fair trading New South Wales for, uh, you know, affected stakeholder consultation to uh, see how they can implement it. But one of the things they chose not to get rid of was the uh, no-fault lease uh, termination it was in the policy, like it was in the original proposal, but uh, no, it was campaigned against and uh, taken out. Ah, so this is probably the appropriate point to drop in this 
uh, audio from a, a Channel Nine report this week. When we get when they play the bit of Gladys Berejiklian responding to it, you'll notice that she doesn't exactly answer the question. She doesn't answer the question at all. This little federation house in Dulwich Hill was Penny Howard's family home for five years, a rental that they made their own. But with a seven-month-old son and a husband waiting for brain surgery, the landlord suddenly evicted them without any reason at all. They said, well, we don't think you're a good fit for this house anymore, and despite the fact we'd been living there for five years, always paid our rent on time. Penny was even happy to pay $100 a week more, but was still kicked out. The laws give people absolutely no protection and don't recognise the fact that the places that we live are our homes. A proposal was taken to Cabinet last year to outlaw what are known as no-fault evictions, but it was vehemently opposed. Ray Williams, one of the most vocal against, has an interest in six investment properties. He's not alone. Gabrielle Upton has five, Paul Toole four. Adam Marshall, Tanya Davies, Victor Dominello and David Elliott all invest in property. Premier, did, uh, did any member of Cabinet declare they were landlords when discussing this important piece of policy? Uh, we are always a government that has supported the rights uh, of our renters uh, and will continue to do so. Nine News has contacted all the ministers mentioned and while only some responded, they all said the same thing, that their properties have been declared publicly and there is no conflict of interest. It's not just the traditional renter enclaves in the inner city either. In Penrith, more than half the population rent voters the Premier needs to hang on to. We've made sure that a number of reforms were passed uh, recently uh, in New South Wales. These are giving tenants and renters better opportunities, more rights, more freedoms. Yeah, and, and what were these reforms that improved renters' uh, freedoms and rights? Well, that... They have, uh, like, like Victoria, they have put in some protections for domestic violence. Again, which aren't, aren't, haven't come into effect. Like, no, no, they who haven't. knows when they will? And so, like, the ones they're talking about, what, what will, if they do come into effect, what, are, what protections will renters have? Apart from the protection for, for domestic violence victims, which again, and it's the same question I have with Victoria, how do, they, how do they define a domestic violence victim? Do you have to have gone to the police? Like, does there have to be various reports? What if, like, what timeline is there? Um, so there are, I have a lot of questions about that. But they're putting in minimum standards, and there's seven... Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, there's seven minimum standards they put in. Okay, so the houses have to be in decent and comfortable and livable? No, not, not that much, not that far? It no. needs to be, number one, a structurally sound property. Okay. What? Wait, wait. This is in 2018 that they're having to add this. Until yeah. in 2017, this wasn't in it. In was, New South Wales, you didn't have to. It was not, in the 2010 uh, Residential Tenancies Act, these seven things weren't in. Did not have to be structurally sound. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It needs to have adequate natural or artificial lighting in each room, except storage rooms or garages. Wait. So you could have a rental property where you couldn't actually see inside it because it didn't there have any no artif- light in the bedroom or anything. Yeah. Including artificial light. Yeah. Okay. No, it has to have number three adequate ventilation. Mm-hmm. Be supplied with electricity. So it should be able to have air in it. Yes. Okay, great. Supplied with electricity or gas, or have adequate electricity or gas outlets for lighting, heating, and appliances. Well, that's very, very kind of them to make mm-hmm. that a minimum in 2018. This one always amuses me. It needs to have adequate plumbing and drainage. What? What's adequate? What qualifies as adequate plumbing and drainage? Well, but also, what were the things that they didn't have to have in by way of drainage and plumbing? And until this, well, it's like currently, because apparently this isn't in place yet. So apparently you still don't have to have the rental property be structurally sound. Mm. It needs to be connected to water supply service or the infrastructure for the supply of hot and cold water for drinking, washing and cleaning. Okay. Again, 2018, still not. Okay. Right. And the final one, number seven, it has to contain bathroom facilities, including toilet and washing facilities, which allow the user privacy. Wow, Gladys, what, what amazing freedoms you've granted renters. I know. <laughs> and these standards need to be maintained throughout the tenancy. All right. Well, that's something. Uh, they are also giving things to landlords like... Um, making it easy for them to gain compensation for president, uh, residential premises that are abandoned. The one that got me was allow landlords access to premises without the tenant's consent to take photographs or make a visual recording of the interior in order to advertise the premises for sale or lease. The landlord can exercise this right only once in a 28-day period preceding the commencement of marketing the premises for sale or lease or the termination of the residential tenancy agreement. 
However, they can't publish them without the tenant's consent, but the, that can't be unreasonably withheld. Yeah. So, but so ignoring what they can do with them and, and whether that's you, you can have any control over what, what's allowed to be reasonable in terms of saying no, but they can just let themselves in without your consent to take photographs and do a visual recording of your home. Yeah. And all they have to do is say, I'm selling it uh, within the next 28 days. I'm putting it on the market. Uh, yeah, so, no, holy crap. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine any of the people who think this is reasonable thinking that somebody should have that power over them? Sorry, a random stranger. A stranger is going to be able to come into your house whenever they feel like it and take visual um, and record it. Well, and there's something here that I didn't actually realise wasn't um, a thing because I lived in the property I lived in in New South Wales for pretty much the 12 years before I moved here, um, that they're introducing a penalty to the landlord or agent if they don't provide the tenant with a property condition report at the start of a tenancy. They didn't already have to do that. Like, I know in Victoria they have to. But again, the bottom line is none of these protections have any meaning at all if there are no-fault evictions because basically any tenant who dares to exercise them, even if they're successful, can just be given notice to fuck off. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it does happen and it will continue to happen. Um, and, yeah, the fact that these people making these decisions in the New South Wales Cabinet are all investment property owners themselves is just despicable. And, and look... That's the first thing I've ever heard from the new leader of the opposition in New South Wales, the new Labor leader. If you own an investment property and you're making laws about investment properties, you should say, I have a conflict, I'm leaving. Full stop. That's not the first thing I have heard from him. I've also heard him talk about stadiums. Good point. Pointing out that, yes, weird that they can find all that money for stadiums, but not for, you know... Um, Essential services. Yeah. So... I guess the, where we leave that and what we can do about it is this is a big war that they're running at the moment and it is really vital that, first of all, renters who you know who hear, who are currently being squeezed and who are really vulnerable to a campaign on, hey, if they do anything about it, it'll make your rents even worse, you need to be able to reassure them that, no, that's a lie. It's based on the idea that there was a, a point at which needed gearing was reined in um, briefly and rents in some places did rise and in other places they fell. Um, but the, it was there was no correlation between the two. It was just that rents moved for other yeah. reasons. Um, and the bottom line is for renters... Have you noticed your rents not skyrocketing under the current under the investment field market? And like I said, the domain report came out and it shows that rents have gone up in almost every Melbourne market, or they've plateaued. They've gone up between zero and four percent in the last year. Um, well, the, and the response is like when the landlords go, "Hey, if you make our, if you take away our ability to make money out of this, we'll just have to pass it on to the to our tenants." No, you can't. Because you are already squeezing tenants as much as the market can bear. And you squeeze them a little more each year. But rents are being set at what they can squeeze. They're not based on their costs. They're based on what the maximum they can get out of us. Yes, and what they think they can rent the property for if they were to re-rent it to a new person. Yeah, that's got nothing to do with their costs. It's to do with what the market and the market is being squeezed. So your rents will continue to rise as long as they think they can get away with it. And they will think they can get away with it as long as the market is filled with people on higher incomes who would previously have been able to buy a house who are now renting. And unfortunately, this this has a horrible knock-on effect. I know we've discussed it before, but the knock-on effect continues with people, for example, like us, who are professionals making decent incomes, are forced to rent because we can't afford a home. Then what about the people a few yeah, that's right. tiers we, down from us? It and pushes what about the people everybody down. Tiers further. down from them. You have this situation where you have seniors uh, losing their apartments and not having any idea where they're going to go or live. Um, you have people who are poor, single mothers, all sorts of people on um, people on, on things like Newstart. You couldn't afford Can't to afford- alone if you're on Newstart. My God. Um, and so homelessness then becomes a bigger issue. It, it's just... It, it's this horrible well, cycle. Have you noticed that when, whenever they're responding to this, the uh, investment lobby, the, the right-wing dickheads who are perfectly happy with things as they are because they don't get because they own their own home and they're, fi- they're quite comfortable and they don't have a random stranger getting to come into their house and video it if they feel like it. Um, but they're like, it's not your home. It's the landlord's home. Yeah. No, 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 no. It is the renter's home. It's and the they're not, they're not serfs. Yeah. We're, people renting have a home. Unless you're saying that what you've done is declare that a large proportion of Australia is in fact homeless. There is this 
sort of moral attitude, this superior moral attitude to this renting a home and... Um, what, you're better people if you own shit? That, that you are. You are a better person if you own it. But there is this... But that was in the in old all... days when you could actually work and save up and buy a home, which you can't do now. And it seems that in the... Um, in the comments to these posts and, and all of these sorts of things, the commentary is that, oh, well, it's my property. I own it. Um, you should you should just maybe buy a place if this, you don't like it. it <laughs> there's barriers to that. It, it reminds me of the idea of when people complain about representation in, say, comics or movies or that sort of thing. Well, if you don't like it, you should go write your own. Well, there are barriers to that. You just can't go write things yourself. Second of all, is it really that hard to introduce representation? Apparently? Yeah, and fundamentally, the whole problem is that people can't just go and... It's not a solution if the whole problem is that that's been ruled out and that's why we're having this yes. problem. So that's been depressing and something to keep an eye on. The other thing that was depressing coming up to the end of the year and before we hit Australia versus Humanity was Nazis in Melbourne. <laughs> no, and you I mean Nazis in Melbourne isn't Australia versus Humanity? Well, it kind of is, isn't it? But, but I'm, I'm keeping Australia versus Humanity for the cruel things that we do to refugees. Ah, um, fair enough. The bit where we're paying... What, how much did we pay Fraser Anning to fly down from... Sorry, Queensland Member of Parliament to... Sorry, Queensland Senator with, what, 19 first preference votes. Um, but, you know, obviously he got, got, his, got the preferences of... Um, other right-wing lunatics but yeah we're paying to him to fly down for a nazi rally and he's like i didn't realize they were nazis the holy fuck they've got really ss like helmets and they're doing like the people involved are the same people who want pictures of hitler in classrooms like what adding's going trying to argue that he genuinely didn't know that and yeah all they but the problem is that they, what they wanted was attention they got a bunch of news organizations lazily referring to them to just as you know far-right activists Rather than, you know, like Nazis. Yeah. yeah, the fact that they were giving, you know, Nazi salutes and and wearing Nazi t-shirts and things like that. Well, they've got to stop the African gangs, by which they mean Sudanese youths playing basketball. Yes, well, that, that, that's very dangerous. Well, they, they were out there being being uh, offensive to white people by being black and, and not being cowed into... Mm. It's just, seriously, that Australia has this now, and we actually had a senator attend in support, and... I think News Limited had some editorials about how, you know, we needed to stop dividing people on race. And given that the Herald Sun has worked so hard to promote the idea that there's some kind of race problem and, and filling people with the idea, with fear, filling idiot readers with the idea that this is a real thing and trying to stoke racial hatred yes. for profit. Now, it failed in the state election. They tried hard and it didn't work for them. But they're the ones who are doing it. They probably disingenuously mean... People, they, they, people, uh, being protective and supportive of uh, minority racial groups, which oh. they they think is the real racism. Well, you know, the Liberal Party did vote that it's okay to be white, and the, oh yeah, and, and that wasn't notes, an accident. Like and, the, the way they came out and said, "Oh no, we didn't know about that." No, there was plenty of back and forth before that. They yes, knew perfectly well. They knew perfectly well what they were voting for. But yeah, it was ending plan to claim uh, more than twenty eight hundred dollars for travel to Saturday's far right rally. He said, it's legitimate business. As far as I'm concerned, I didn't go down there for a party or a picnic. I went down in the morning and came back on the afternoon. $2,800. Well, how is it to benefit the benefit of his constituents in Queensland to be attending far-right rallies Research. in Melbourne? They were complaining about Sudanese people in Melbourne. What the hell has that got to do with Fraser running in Queensland? Well, apparently, interestingly, it's also come out that he's claimed taxpayer-funded accommodation and meals allowance for staying at his brother's hotel up in the region of Babinda. South of Cairns, so he goes up to Cairns for stuff and then drives down to Babinda and stays at his brother's hotel and claims, like, the $545 for his electric duties. That sounds about right. Well, there's a whole lot of them who the own... The hotel's $85 a night. A lot of federal MPs own um, investment properties in Canberra and then, or, they, or their wives do. Yes. And they charge That's right, the Turnbull did that to being, That is definitely a thing that should be shut down. I think it's probably time for Australia versus Humanity. Um, there were two things that I wanted to cover this week. The first one is this insane story from the end of December. I'll read the headline uh, in the um, Sydney Morning Herald. Execution, not insurmountable hardship, Immigration Department says. This story is about there is a North Korean-born refugee uh, who has served two stints in prison for drug-related crimes. So the Department of Immigration says that uh, he should be deported for failing the character test because apparently his drug-related crimes make him a danger to the Australian community. Yeah. And it completely ignores the PTSD, the mental health issues, and it just shows how we sort of throw people under the bus who with these issues. 
The department recognises that he will probably be executed or sent to a forced labour camp on arrival in North Korea. So the department accepts that, that he may be, uh, this is what it says in the documents, he may be subject to the death penalty or put into one of the secretive regime's notorious forced labour camps on his return, but these threats are not an insurmountable hardship sufficient to stop his deportation. You know, oh, uh, death. Uh, yeah, look, execution is a hardship, but it's not insurmountable. You can get past it. Um, I saw a movie once Zombies? Well, look, the, the Morrison government is, is advocates for for, for um, Christian values, and and their version, they, they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Execution wasn't an insurmountable hardship for him, and they built a whole religion out of him. So, if this gentleman can't rise from the dead, like you know what they believe God did, then you know he's not really trying. It's not insurmountable to be executed. I mean, that's yeah. just mad. And it's it, the thing that got me is that it had actually already been. It went through the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which upheld the department's decision in October. They, the senior member said, uh, agreed there were strong reasons why Cho shouldn't be returned, but he ultimately found that the protection of the Australian community and community expectations outweigh other considerations. Why? Like, whatever it is that we would have done to an Australian citizen, why is Cho more dangerous to the Australian community than anyone else who'd done exactly the same things but was an Australian citizen? Oh, it's, it's madness. And you're right. Like, he may well have PSD. He fled... North Korea in the early 1990s. He criticised the, the regime, became a target of the government, was bound for a forced labour camp, so he had to flee and couldn't say goodbye to his family. He arrived here at 26 in 1993. He stowed away in a shipping container mm. bound for North Queensland. Like, those are shipping containers that people die in because they can't breathe. Yep. And so, so he developed mental health problems here. and then started using drugs from that. So... He was convicted of supplying a prohibited drug, was jailed for two years and three months back in 2008, and then offended again because he was found, he supplied 385 grams of methamphetamine to feed his $300 a day ice addiction. And so now he's going to be deported to be killed. So he's a person with mental health illness uh, from probably from the fleeing North Korea uh, and what he witnessed there, and then commits some drug-related crimes and we want to send him back to be executed. How humane. Yeah, well, you know, again, not insurmountable. There are things we could do to get over it. I just, I just love that. The, the, the departmental official saying, I accept that Mr. Cho would face hardship arising from fears that he could face imprisonment or execution after speaking out against the government of the day were he to return to North Korea. I accept that Mr. Cho would face hardship if he were returned to North Korea. However, I find this hardship, though significant, will not be insurmountable. I just... Yeah, I just... I... And, and... Do they know what insurmountable means? Have they looked it up? I, I, I've just reread basically the same bongus text like three times because it's just insane. Like, so that apparently that's the test. Like, we have it's to. We have to, too great to be overcome. And apparently they they do have to consider that they can't just go bad person we deport you. Like, that there apparently is a test there as to the hardship they would face if they were um, deported. How much more hardship can you have than being put in a forced labor camp or executed? Too like, great to be overcome. It seems like you can't overcome an execution. I, it, anyway, okay, so there's that. The other thing uh, that we saw this week, and this one is almost as insane, uh, this is questions that the Department of Immigration was querying people in 2012. So to be fair to Peter Dutton, he wasn't the minister at that point. It was still under Labour. Yeah. So two Bangladeshi men seeking protection in Australia on the basis that they were gay and a de facto couple were subjected to these sorts of questions. So it just come out through an FOI request. I, I don't know if I can read them. I, I mean, I did swear and use the F word earlier in the podcast, but they were literally asking, the officer was asking questions like when they had sex, whether they had sexual intercourse the night before, when uh, they last had sex with the other person, um, the details of the intercourse, when they had sex, in what room, what time of day, how long it lasted, was it all over within minutes or a longer period, 30 minutes to one hour, the officer asked. The officer then pressed for more details of the intercourse. They said, I'm not kidding, quote, so you gave him oral sex. Did he ejaculate? Ejaculate? Did he reach a climax? Did he come? After asking how long it took for... Anyway, it goes and on it like goes, this. It goes very detailed into that. Was like, drinking his... Anyway, so this goes... is insane. I know, I'm not going to read any more on the podcast. But So there will be people who think, that's a bit gross, but look, they're saying that they're gay and that's why they need protection, so how else are we supposed to find out? What, film them or something? Okay, governments need to accept... Take at face value when people say they're being persecuted oh. in relation that they are gay. If somebody says they're gay, somebody says they're they're straight. If somebody says about like that's that is a thing that somebody communicates, and you can't get into their head, and it's not your business to get into their head. 
you can't get into that if they say I'm persecuted because I'm I was a left wing activist or I was I'm being perse- I was persecuted because uh, I spoke out against the regime. Like yes. if it's hard for them to find evidence of that, you kind of have to take them at their word. If you think that they're faking being gay to get here, they're pretty desperate to seek refuge. And frankly, they make fine Australian citizens. They're clearly people who are very motivated to, um. to build a life here. It's not the things have gone ass up when the government is specifically asking about people's sex lives, and that, by the way, I reckon includes. Centrelink asking about people's sex lives. The whole ridiculous thing where um, if two people are on a new start and they form a relationship, Centrelink goes, cool, we'll cut both of your payments because apparently like, now you can live on le- even less than below subsistence. Yes. Um, now that you're having sex with someone, you don't need... I, what? You don't need to pay rent? Like, I, it certainly is relevant for Centrelink to be asking people to declare when they have other sources of income. If they have a partner who is wealthy and is providing for them and paying their rent and they're not pay- they don't have rental costs or... like. That is certainly relevant, and that should certainly be taken into account to the amount of cent. But, but so should it be if you're living at home with your parents and you're not paying rent. But that's not a question that Centrelink gives a shit about. Mm. Like, um, people get lots of support from parents, and Centrelink doesn't take reduce their payment for that. But if a poor person has sex with another poor person, Centrelink wants to cut them. So therefore, because of that mad injustice, Centrelink then goes around asking people about their sex lives, which it shouldn't. No yeah. government should ever be asking you about your sex life. There Not are... only that, it also spies on people about their sex lives. It uses their social media and stuff like that to spy on them. Oh, I, I, and I do love the idea that they assume that if somebody's having sex with somebody else, that that other person must be providing for them financially. Because, you know, any poor person who has sex is clearly a sex worker. They're, they're having sex, they must be being paid for it somehow. That's not how human relationships work, you insane bastards. But yeah. Isn't it? So, to be clear, this is under the Department of Immigration and Citizenship when Chris Bowen was the minister. So let's let's remember, uh, Labor were absolute where credit was due. Yep, Labor were absolute bastards on this stuff. Um, they do not deserve any credit for anything they've done in this entire area. But yeah, that's. I mean, it's hard to hard to process I, that. And, and that story is profoundly depressing. Denise, do you have anything to like cheer me up after that horror? Like, may, maybe you can take something that would be Australia versus humanity, like imprisoning Indigenous people for unpaid fines. And where they die, despite like you know the Royal Commission to Deaths in Custody, like specifically recommending against that, and like the fact that we are killing people for fines, which well, is Australia versus humanity. Is there something good that's happened? Please tell me something good. Strangely, there actually is. Western Australia has a real issue with uh, jailing people for unpaid fines. The people who usually end up jailed for these unpaid fines are Aboriginal women, the majority of them. Uh, They jail them until their fines are paid off. Unfortunately, this leaves um, families without support, uh, children without carers. It's a really horrible system. Um, Well, like like there's a $3,100 debt from a mother of three who was unable to call police to respond to domestic violence concerns until her debt was cleared or face arrest herself. Yes, and this sort of system keeps happening. Um, or a woman who stole tampons for a friend from a servo yeah. because her friend didn't have tampons. Like, in all of these sorts of things, women have died in custody. Multiple multiple Aboriginal women have died in custody. Um, and so a campaign was started to raise money to pay off these fines. They've, um, in 48 hours, they raised their goal of $99,000 to pay off the estimated fines for 100 Aboriginal women who faced jail for non-payment of fines in Western Australia. But as of Wednesday, they'd raised more than 160000 And they keep trying to um, see how high they can go. Um, I mean, I don't want to be encouraging the government to be lodging these fines and to be holding these women as hostages until they get the money. On the other hand, if you are going to be paying uh, money to free somebody, that's a very effective way to fix to, to create, correct an injustice. And the money goes into general revenue where it can be used for public services. Well, and the, the interesting thing is that um, the current government did promise to change the law before they won the last election because the last coronial inquest recommended that they did after the death of Ms. Dew in 2014 in custody. And she's not the only death. It's really, really unhealthy. <gasps> Apparently, the number of people jailed solely from paid fines is fewer than 10 a month from 2018, down from 20 a month in January. But that's still too many. Jailing someone for a fine because they are unable to pay it off. Jail should be a last resort for somebody who's actually a, a threat to the community. Not, yeah. not, it should never be used for fines. It's ridiculous. And they're talking about like, oh, well, we'll set up um, payment plans for you. Okay, so you have someone on New Start. Who doesn't have enough to live in the first place. Doesn't have enough to live on. Someone who lives remotely. And you are suddenly saying that they can't get help. They can't access any help for things, like you say, for domestic violence, for anything. Um, 
Well, the, the best advice thing was that she was uh, she couldn't call the police to come and protect her because they would jail her for the fines instead yeah. of the person who was assaulting her. Exactly. Yep. And and they'll end up arrested, but they're also then um, away from their kids. A yeah. lot of the time, like a lot of the time, you have people who are single moms, and like it, it's it's hor it's a horribly unjust system. They're also trying to help people who are at risk of being jailed, so that's including people with fines of like thirty thousand. But keep in mind, like that sounds. Oh my well, god, you must have done something thing- terrible. But I haven't dealt with the Western Australian system, and I'm not sure what the precise details are of that thirty thousand dollar fine. But I do know that here in Victoria. There are many ways that you could end up with fines that high, uh, in particular from Citylink, the Jeff Kennett uh, abomination, and any any of the things that have come from, so including Eastlink after that, because the legislation that uh, the, the deal that Kennett signed up to, where he gave away the existing road that Victorians had paid for, uh, it's this like thirty four year contract to to um, the consortium that built Citylink, um, but those things can start off with a you know an unpaid fee on the toll of you know 10 bucks or 20 bucks but by the time the letter comes out another 40 dollars added 40 dollars next one has like 100 dollars added 200 dollars so if you have say an ex who's driving your car who's driving around running up these debts um and then nicks off and they don't have any money you get stuck with the fines very quickly it does yeah. not you can in a short period of a couple of months uh have built up or particularly if the person was um intercepting the mail throwing them out like yeah. there's a lot of ways that you can end up with a giant huge parent debt. Oh, it, might not, it may not be called parent now, but um, when I was dealing with it, it was. Um, you can end up with these giant debts, like $30,000, for something you've never done. And they're not... They're debts that aren't provable in bankruptcy, so you can't even like declare bankruptcy and move on. It's insane. Um, so when you look at a fine like 30000 you go, that must be a terrible person who's done very bad things. Keep in mind that there are... Because these things are designed to remove real room... They hit innocent people. They do. And a lot of the fines compound as well. And a lot of the fines, um, yeah, you're the, it's one of the ways the system and the judicial system hurts the poor more than it hurts, say, the rich. Oh, yeah. You get a, a bad speeding fine, which then compounds because you don't pay the speeding fine on time, which then compounds because you don't pay it again. Or a rich person speeds and goes, eh, oh, that's nice. Here, here's the money. Yeah. Um, oh, also, at- also when they take license, I mean, another way that it, it affects the poor, if you lose your license on points or something, the impact of that on a rich person who lives in the in in, in Melbourne who's got excellent public transport around them, yeah, they'll just have to get public transport. They'll be yeah. fine. Uh, whereas if you're you know poor and have to live in a further a remoter area where there is nothing, there is no reasonable yeah. public transport. Um, you know, doesn't matter if you've got a sick kid, you already get to the hospital or anything. Doesn't take any of that into account. Not bad yeah. luck. You're just but the the level of the fines is different. And it's interesting this comes up because it was actually something that was proposed at the Labor State Conference in New South Wales in mid-2018. And it's a thing that their Treasury spokesman, uh, Ryan Parker, said that they're going to look into reviewing the way fines from speed cameras, public transport, and the like are calculated. They're looking at potentially varying fines according to people's capacity to to pay if they win the election in 2019. So if that happens... That would be an equitable step, although, of course, you know, yeah. there'll be screams of, of protest from, from better wow. off people. Exactly. Well, the Free the People campaign, and if you do want to uh, search for it, just Google GoFundMe Free the People, um, is currently at $212,000. They've raised the goal to 275000 because they're not only trying to pay the fines for people now, they want to pay the fines for um people in the future there's there's like hundreds of people in western australia who this is a problem too they're also campaigning to um get the attorney general to actually make the changes and the attorney general keeps saying things like oh well we'll look at garnishing wages and we'll look at garnishing centrelink but again as we just said you know that harms the poor more than it actually helps yeah so there it is it's a it's a good it's it's a sort of good news story it's some people who went and did something amazing it's people in australia donating it's 4860 people have donated $213,000 in 4 days to help primarily aboriginal women in western australia it's amazing yeah i love this story it's wonderful it shits me that it's necessary like it's one of those situations where it drives me a bit crazy that we're in this situation still yeah, it's it's like the classic thing of charity. The existence of charity is to f- where it has to fix up government failure. Now, the rich are perfectly happy with charity being the the, the solve that, that you know they can look at and go, "There's something for the poor to do." I don't have to think about it too hard. There's charity, mm. but it shouldn't be reliant on that. It's something that that government, being representative of all of us and the system that that we've put in place, there shouldn't be homelessness. There shouldn't be people who are going to Centrelink like I don't have anything enough to eat and Centrelink going. 
bad luck. Yeah. Wait, wait six to eight weeks and we'll see if we can help you. Yeah. Like, and there shouldn't be people who are fleeing domestic violence who can't get something from Centrelink immediately to help them through the situation, who need to go find a shelter somewhere if the shelter has space, if there is availability. Like, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the fact that this is... Yeah, I'm going to focus on this being a good story, yes. but it is it is a thing that is there to, to fix up from cruelty from government and incompetence from government. So, yeah, there there are some holes there. But that said, I still want to end on the, the story of people doing something good. So I'm going to drop off the bit about Clive Palmer's ex- ridiculous feud with Twisted Sister over his... Oh, but Australia's not going to take it, mate. Oh, God. I, I do love that he's come back. So um, Clive Palmer had some ads where he was using a variant of uh, the Twisted Sister song, We're Not Going to Take It, uh, which... Clive Palmer's version sounds like this. Authorised by Clive Palmer for the United Australia Party, Brisbane. And Twisted Sister were not impressed. And so Clive is now saying, well, first of all, you stole that, that melody from O Come All Ye Faithful. Um, from the 1700s. Yeah. Uh, we. To be fair, the, the tune is... The notes pretty much the same, um, and and I've got my own lyrics, and now he's trying to stop the guy coming to Australia. Do you think Weird Al doesn't pay people for the songs he uses when he changes the words to them? He does. He <laughs> has to pay for the rights. Well, look, I am still angry about the ludicrous case that destroyed uh, Men at Work and, and caused, I think, it was the flautist to kill himself in the end. I think. Yes. Very sad. Um, and that that case is ridiculous. The idea that an homage to Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree at that particular point in the verse is like uh, a thing that should have been out of copyright by that time anyway. But that that gave the parasite who'd bought that song copyright the song had been donated to the Girl Guides and yeah. they'd then sold it. And this parasite had just bought it and then sued men at work for it and made money out. It just that was obscene. But if we're going to have copyright that thinks that that is an infringement, then Bloody God. And, and I think Twisted Sister were like, hey, um, we're coming with our lawyers and check out what happened with Eminem with the, the National New Party government. of New Zealand. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what I also enjoy is that Clive Palmer's trying to get Dutton to uh, cancel his visa for his concerts. He's got bad character. Oh, gosh. I, he's the man's insane. I'm not going to say anything uh, in any detail about the bit where Scott Morrison's front page on the PM uh, website had his... his Sneakers photoshopped over with some clean white sneakers and two left feet because Morrison, you know, tweeted his own one and said, oh, department, you didn't need to do that. And, and you know, done the, the honourable thing as a prime minister, which is throwing his department under the bus. It was them, not me. But that isn't the most, that isn't the embarrassing thing from Scott Morrison in the last few months anyway, because this audio is the most embarrassing thing that Scott Morrison should be ashamed of in the last few months. Prime Minister Morrison and... We've just gotten to know each other, and so far, so good, I have to tell you. I think it's going to be a great relationship, and we certainly anticipate having a fantastic relationship always with Australia. Um, I know you've done a fantastic job in a very short period of time. You've done a lot of the things that they've wanted over there, and that's why you're sitting right here. So I congratulate you. Yeah, that's a more damning indictment than your department photoshopping you with two left feet. Ended on a cheerful note. Yes, the thing where citizens have come up to try and overcome the deficiencies of their government and the cruelties of their government, and also to try and get them changed. Hooray! Hooray! That's probably the place to leave it then. Let's leave it on a high note. Thank you everybody for coming back. Thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. You're how the podcast keeps going. Uh, thank you to everybody who has given us a positive review on iTunes. That's very helpful in people finding the podcast. And thank you to you for listening, and we look forward to being in your ears regularly throughout the rest of 2019 so welcome back for the new year and we will see you next week see you next week bye